2: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey.
3: And I'm Robert Diamond.
2: And this is Talk Art.
3: Welcome to Talk Art.
2: How are you, Rob?
3: I'm feeling like a rebel.
2: Really? Yes. In what in way? With a
3: with a cause. Because I love today's guest. I think he is someone that inspires me to speak out more than I usually would because what? sometimes it can be scary to mm-hmm. criticize people especially in the art world or call <laughs> them out.
2: You quite like doing it though yeah you like, like yeah between me yeah
3: I love criticizing you Russ but, um, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> but what I love about today's guest is that he is someone that calls out kind of bad behavior and mm-hmm. people who are doing kind of crappy things in the art world actually and he writes mm-hmm. an amazing uh, column for Artnet which has been mm-hmm. going on for a long time and he's also just incredibly entertaining he has this Mm -hmm. kind of well he's been called a provocateur before and that Mm -hmm. is quite a good description of him and i i had a very funny experience once years ago when we had the gallery in um shoreditch we were at the rivington restaurant and i think i was talking about the work of our friend tracy emin um because mm-hmm. we used to have our prints up and he actually was at another table and overheard the conversation and interrupted me and was like excuse me you have really good taste or something and we had this whole hilarious very intense <laughs> conversation across the tables about contemporary <laughs> art it was genius so that that just gives you an idea of what he's like he's very yeah. um, and also he loves to also, interact our
2: guest is an artist himself. He's an art collector, he's an art dealer, he's an art writer, he's a curator, he's a teacher, and he's a self proclaimed hoarder. And he <laughs> used to be based in London, then he's gone back to the States, then now I think he's somewhere else in Europe. So we're quite interested to talk to our guest today to find out where in the world he actually is now. Uh, <laughs> so we would like to welcome to Talk Art
1: Kenny Schachter. Schachter. <laughs> you're hi, putting Jenny. so much pressure on me hi everybody Good. thank you so much for having me
2: <laughs> that's all right you've I'm got so to be everything so, have, now, like, Kenny, you, this is a this is a talk art interrogation everything, everything <laughs> for the whole art world right now I
1: have well I have I have to say I'm such a fan and I think what you've done is emblematic of a lot of different things that are going on in the art world that I think are very important and I'd love to touch upon them well number one you put a lot of pressure on me to be entertaining <laughs> which is going to be tricky <laughs> in the first of yeah. all places but I mean, I just think the audience that you've developed from from your podcast has been extraordinary and it's really reflective of the overall expansion of the art market, which has grown, not the art market, the art world, which mm-hmm. has grown more in the past 25 years than in the previous 250 years. So I think it's quite yeah. an amazing phenomenon that you guys are spearheading a part of yourselves.
2: Oh, thanks, Kenny. That's amazing. Well, it's what an endorsement to come from you, like art world royalty art world uh magic asshole. you know you've you've been, <laughs> art world asshole yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where in the world where where in the world are you right now
1: well i'm actually i'm actually i'm in spain with the family right oh, nice. now in the south yeah. of spain
2: have you been there since, and since and lockdown or since
1: they never since they never listened to me i always love a captive audience like you guys that <laughs> i, I can speak to i was in new york for three months during the quarantine and i have mm-hmm. to say like I mean, I'm I'm a professor at the School of Visual Arts, and I had a Zoom class for for two months into the quarantine, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: um, I was in New York City, and you would imagine from reading the press that people were just keeling over in the street from illness, which, of course, we suffered one of the greatest tragedies in the world, and certainly in my lifetime, and I'm quite old, and I'm sure in most people, and it's been a terrible thing, but it's certainly in New York City... Or in America, wasn't as bad as the press would make it out to be. There's a lot of fear-mongering going on on a lot of different fronts. Mm-hmm. And also in the art world, I have to say, for other reasons. But, I mean, it was I was working, I was teaching, I was able to get out and walk every day. Central Park was filled with people, albeit there was a hospital in Central Park, which I don't yeah. attend A hospital, which I don't think ever really, thankfully, had much um, activity going on. Mm -hmm. But then I went to Europe because my kids were back in London. I went to see them and spent a little bit of time in London, and now I've been in Spain. Oh, that's good. And and
2: talking about the art market then, during this whole pandemic, there was fear that it was going to uh, just cancel itself out and no one would buy work and everything would be a problem. But it felt like the art market has actually gone up another gear. It feels like especially what's going on in the auctions at the moment and the way that people are collecting It feels like there isn't a fear of this bubble bursting anytime soon.
1: Well, the first point, this is, you've touched upon a lot of issues in that one sentence. And the most important issue is that there's not a, I could say emphatically, I don't want to scream and annoy your readers, your listeners more than I'm about to, but there's no bubble. There's never been a bubble. And that's complete absurdity to even I mean I'm not saying you I'm not ready to get into a fight with you just yet (laughs) but uh (laughs) that's there is no bubble and there's two very important key factors about art and humanity number one in terms of the market and collecting um I'm so tired of like all the time in the press whenever there's like during 2008 and all the talk was that the art world would be like you said canceled that would utterly evaporate um, there's always going to be constrictions in a market in the same vein that any, all markets go up and down. That's, but since art came off the wall of a cave, it's been coveted. Collecting is part of human nature. When I, I organized, uh, an auction at Sotheby's called the hoarder, you mentioned hoarding. I collect art. I mean, it's funny because it, I could tell you one thing in a hundred years from now, when f- phones are embedded in our forearm, we're going to be talking into our arms saying, hello, hello, can you hear me? Hello? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be technology <laughs> glitches. The art world will be with us forever, and so will technology problems when we're trying to communicate with each other. <laughs> yes. But since art came off the wall of the cave, it's been coveted by people. That's one thing. So art, will, art collecting is part of human nature. To live with art has already been medically proven to, like, They've done studies in the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which is actually accredited as an art as a as a museum. Mm-hmm. That they have a very proactive commissioning program in all of the rooms and public spaces, and there's a Veronese uh, old master in the chapel at the hospital. But most importantly, they've done clinical studies that reveal that the patients being surrounded by art has resulted in shorter hospital stays and less medications required of no the patients. Why? So art has an actual physiological ameliorative effect on your lives. And I have to say, like, I'm going to get sidetracked a million times, but during during the lockdown, it was the first time, like in 30 years of my career that I wasn't at an airport every two weeks. Literally, it was the longest in 25, 30 years that that I had um, that I had not been uh, to an airport traveling. And. I was able to rub my nose against a painting or a drawing every single day. Mm. And it just, I mean, to take stock and to, to, we're we're always in a rush and we're like, we're always late, but we're never going anywhere really on this treadmill, going to art fairs and going to auctions and running, running, running. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just have to look what's in front of your nose and you see the world. And Mm. so anyway, back to this, I'm going to try to stay on track as much as I can, but, Mm -hmm. Living, collecting is as primal as breathing, and it's part of human nature since trading before money was even invented. And the craziest thing is that, that, I mean, there's actually studies that currency was created for a Chinese emperor to help him facilitate and continue and expand on his collecting practices. No way. He was such a big art collector. He had like 7,000 objects, and he was also an artist. So the other thing is that art making is the same as taking a crap. I mean, it's, it's part of living. And it's part of it's like breathing, eating sustenance. So people will always make art because it's a reaction. uh, It's a means of communication above all else. And the creative act is so um, ingrained in the human psyche that psyche that it's part of what differentiates us as a species from animals, say. Uh So people will always make art and people will always appreciate it. And whether we have to trade shells or anything else or food during the pandemic, I traded some books I had written for some paper towels when the, when the pandemic first started, uh, because there was a shortage of toilet paper and paper towels. So I found someone through Instagram to trade me, uh, three rolls of paper towels for four books. (laughs) <laughs> wow. oh my that, God. that's
3: good that is like that's like wartime that, that, that's
1: the dealer side of you that's
3: like negotiating power i like that yeah but i um, mean i have
1: to say i always say i'm the worst art dealer that ever sold a piece of art i can't sell crack to a crackhead it's i read it, that. that's the least interesting <laughs> that's the least interesting part of my career is i hate yeah. i love to buy art but i hate to sell it
3: okay i'm not so a salesman. You, You were talking about having your nose up to artworks every day. And when I mentioned that we were interviewing you to an artist that I know yesterday, she said Uh to me, I've always loved him because we sat next to each other at a dinner and he spoke so eloquently about Paul Tech. And um, that that artist is someone that everybody mentions. If you mention Kenny Schachter, Paul Tech. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a bit about how you came to collect his work and discover him? Because I feel like you were one of the first people I ever heard about his work through.
1: Well, I'm so happy that you asked me that, because I was ready for all the worst, most insidious kind of questions. And when you said you brought my name up to someone, half the time you'll get a reaction that's much different from (laughs) niceties and talking about an artist. But I mean, see, but that's also really, I mean, people, assume many people in the, I mean, people love me or hate me. There's usually little middle ground. But I mean, first and foremost... I am a lover, an intense psychopathic lover of art. And I'm so wildly passionate about art. And really everything else is a kind of like offshoot that originates and stems from what art does to me, whether it's making it, writing about it, teaching it, looking at it, talking about it. Like all of these things you mentioned are like conversations based that are underpinned by speaking about art. And, you know, I just sometimes I even hate what I do in terms of my writing. Because the art market is something I analyze and I feel compelled to write about it in a forthright and honest way because nobody else speaks the truth in the art world. In mm. fact, the art world is probably the only profession where people embrace lies willfully more than they do the truth. I mean, the art world welcomes fake news in that mm. regard. But mm. back to Paul Tech, um, it touches on a lot of different bases for me and things that are so come to the core of my existence in so many ways. In the first way, not to bring up personal, um, stories so much or, or news, but like, I lost my mother when I was 13 years old to a degenerative disease and to see someone deteriorate before your eyes when you're a child is one of the most, I mean, from then, from then on my, everything was couched in my experience based on having seen someone that was so dear and uh, I loved so much to pass away through this disease of cancer. and When I first saw the meat pieces of Paul Tech, so he made these sculptures in the 60s, and they were created with wax, pigment, pieces of plastic, and they emulated the cross-section of flesh. And then he housed them in these very minimalistic vitrines made of plexiglass in yellow often, but they were sort of imprisoned in this box and frozen. And Number one, it expresses the vulnerability. When you're young and you're racing around, going to parties and staying out, and you often forget, you think you're invincible and you forget about the vulnerability of life and what you often look for, you're always looking outside of yourself and you never really think about your organs, what lies within, and that's your heart, your lungs, your, your kidneys and liver. Right. And when you look at this, and in a way like I've never seen a depiction in art that so finely represents this kind of hair uh, it's like the width of a hair that separates between life and death so in a way the work is very alive because it's an artwork that you see it's a physical presence that's so riveting and i also love the fact that it's like this great another fine line between repulsion and seduction because for me there's some of the most exquisitely beautiful aesthetically pleasing objects I've ever seen. Mm. Number two, like it comes the closest from anything I've ever seen uh, as an artistic representation of life and death simultaneously coexisting. And it also, um, it's a handmade object, which looks so stunningly uh, realistic. And Mm. it's also encased in this glass vitrine, which is a very cold object. And in a way, he's also doing a very subtle critique of pop art, which is consumerism and ready-made objects and minimalism, which is machine rendered, taking the humanity out of art, like Donald Judd, just making a metal box, having it fabricated by a machinist. So I was so touched by the work of Paul Tech. It was like, it was even more than an epiphany. It just touched me. I mean, it's made me cry standing in front of the work before. And once I saw that work, I started to, I mean, what I love about art is that art is a lifetime accrual of gaining knowledge and information. And people Mm -hmm. forget about it so much. Today, even though the market's expanded and the audience has expanded so much, Everyone thinks about art and we're going to touch upon this shortly, but like everyone thinks that art is this immediate situation. The newest, hottest artist going for this kind of money and that kind of money. And what's the newest? Who's the latest undiscovered artist? But art is a slow burning process that takes a lifetime to gain insight and information about. And that's really what I love more than anything is just. It has this kind of the best part of school and academics is that every day more art is being made and every day there's something else to learn about. And the more I learned about Paul Tech, the more I just fell head over heels in love with the artist and his practice. And also it reflects a lot of very important uh, components about some of these ancillary issues we're talking about the market because Paul Tech in 1964, I had a show in New York at Pace Gallery. By the way, you started me. So if I talk for three hours, it's your Please fault because you just k- go for it. You we kicked, love it. It, you kicked is, it off. This is
3: the best. And also we, we but, feel oh. very similar to you. Like the whole thing you're saying about constant knowledge, you know, accrual or whatever the word is like. Yeah. We, we feel exactly the same. And that's the reason Russell and I became friends. So, I mean, yeah, we, we right. totally get it.
1: I mean, I I, I really like, I don't go, I mean, I'm going to sound like a complete moron, but (laughs) I lived in London for, haha, I lived in London for 15 years and I saw saw one theater performance. I don't go to theater. I don't go to movies. Mm, Shocking. Uh, I don't read novels. I read books. I'm not like posh or anything, spice. But um, (laughs) everything I do is there's so much for me to learn. I teach, so I learn. I write, yeah. so I look at yeah, things yeah, harder yeah. and think about things harder. There's so much for me to learn, and I know only a fragment of the art world. The yes, art but world what it is, is about- Kenny,
2: what it, I'm going to jump in now. What it is about you, though, is that you are, you've are you made it a kind of mission of your life to analyze the art world. And you are a dealer, but you are fundamentally a collector and a lover of art. But it is this analytical eye that you have. And you're talking about your writing. We just need to let uh, the listeners know that you have a, an opinion column for Artnet News, which is a regular column that you write, which is about the art market, which is telling the truths of it and reveals and the honesty of it all, which a lot of people really admire you for and appreciate. Mm. But why? Why? what is it about the analytical side of, of really trying to get into the nuts and bolts of the way that the commercial art market uh, operates that kind of gets it's like the bee is in your bonnet for that for how to kind of break down the hierarchies and to reveal the honesty and agitate (laughs) fundamentally (laughs) fundamentally fundamentally the the corruption that is involved in all of that and where is the future (laughs) of the art market now during the current climate going forwards are you
1: serious that was about 47 questions how go much time us. do you have? <laughs> we have <laughs> forever.
2: We can go on. Okay. No, I was just saying, what
1: is it? What is it about then? No, no, no. I know. Why? I got you. I got you. Yeah. I, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let me just finish with Paul Tech. Paul Tech yeah. showed a Pace in 1964 and became an art star. He was a good, gorgeous guy. Um, he died of AIDS in 1988 when um, AIDS was like, killed David Wanarovich. And I was, I mean, I met Keith Harring when he had carpasi Sokoma from AIDS oh, and spoke to him. He was one of the first people to just say, I have AIDS when AIDS, you were like a pariah. I mean, there was, wow. you guys are too young, but when AIDS first came out in New York City, the all, 25% of the all world just disappeared. And not right. only that, but like people, there was suspicion that you can get it from that it was so contagious you can get it from kissing somebody. And when people, David Wanarowicz wrote this incredible article that touched me so much that one of his friends was thrown out of a restaurant in the East Village, a very famous Polish restaurant by the proprietor because he had visible signs of the illness. And I mean, that's why all of this activist art sprang up in the 80s. And anyway, Paul Tech died destitute. He went to Italy, he lived in Europe and the impact of Instagram and people like, you know, criticize Instagram, blah, blah. But Paul Tech lived in Europe and America completely lost sight of his work and the artist himself. And when he moved back, he was working in a supermarket after he had been in like five of the biggest biennials in the world and died penniless really living in a little hovel in the East Village. So the fact is that people, back to the money thing, people don't realize that the market is not a quantifier of quality. That's a super important fact that like, you know, the art market for contemporary art is by definition fashion and temporary. Like we said before, art takes time and history by definition is something that resolves itself over the course of time and for artists to be canonized you can't say an artist who's 30 years old or 40 or 50 even could be worth 15 million dollars because that's absurd Mm -hmm. art takes time and so does a market to define itself but anyway paul what i say also is that sometimes to be too good or to be too far ahead of the time is even worse than being behind the time because the art market works like a collective herd of sheep and oftentimes what drives the markets are not inherent quality of a piece of art so back right. to my criticism fact I mean I never in, I never set out to be this zealot this messianic lunatic who I've had <laughs> death threats from my writing I've had someone try to threaten to beat me up a 75 year old lawyer in the middle of a restaurant on Madison Avenue his wow. name might be Richard Gala but I'm not going to mention anything <laughs> well, and- <laughs> what was
2: that about though why 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 what did what was you written what was he upset well, about
1: Because I I wrote about the last time he tried to beat me up in the art, in the middle of a Basel (laughs) art fair, but I'll get. What was that for then? Why did he want
2: to beat you up then?
1: Because we were friendly and I introduced, I mean, it's a very stupid thing. I introduced him to an art dealer friend of mine and he had introduced me to a couple of friends. I even uh, recommended a book agent for him, which he seemed to forget where he got his novel published and he's made a couple of really garish music videos that you should most definitely look for on YouTube. His name is Richard G-O-L-U-B. But anyway, <laughs> we actually own three pieces together to this day. And when he made a connection with my friend, I thought that he was going to buy a piece of Asian art and that's why I made the introduction. And then yeah. my friend told me that he actually they actually did a co-investment deal together. This is another issue which we could touch upon on yeah. how art has changed. But Saatchi has been doing this since the 70s, where people partner up and buy art to sell it. So when I found out from my friend that my that Richard Golub didn't just buy a painting to hang in his house, but he bought art as an investment, I simply asked my friend for a small percentage of his side of the transaction, which is very typical in the course of business as an art dealer. To get such an introductory fee. In fact, a, find, if you a finder's bring a, fee or something. Yes, if you bring a client to Sotheby's or Christie's or Phillips, if you mm. introduce them to someone who wants to sell a Picasso, you are entitled to an intro, uh, finder's fee. Anyway, what? so I did that, which is all normal. And then the art dealer did something that's very typical in the art world. He tried to shitster and and set my friend against me by telling him that I actually had the gall to ask for a commission from the introduction. And Richard Gala went crazy because he had introduced me to people like Simon Lee, the art dealer in London, who I've done, yep. has become a close friend and we've done business. Anyway, he got very incensed about that. But let me just state that this lawyer is world famous for being, you think I'm an agitator. He's gotten into more fights than Muhammad Ali. He is worldwide famous for being one of the most intransigent, uh, argumentative, aggressive human beings and a bully on the planet Earth. Anyway, so I was in Basel one year in Miami, and in the booth was some DJ, and uh, and then Richard Gallup started screaming at me in the top of his lungs, even back then, and that was in 2015. And of course, I'm a writer, so that's all fodder for my writing. So I wrote about this encounter where, I mean, I just said, like, perhaps you should look into some anger management, which just seemed to set him off a little more. And I wrote about it. And then from there, from then, every time he saw me, subsequent to that, he would threaten me, including last November. And I made a, I mean, I make these, I developed this platform in my writing where I create short narrative videos that never last for more than say a minute. And Mm. they're narratives, but very, they're framed for the short Instagram attention spans that as humans we're like evolving into. Anyway, so like every time he engaged with me, like I would just make art about it or write about it to the point where the last time I saw him, he finally caught on after like five years where he was just mumbling under his breath. But like all joking aside, I've had like, I've had death threats, other people throwing fists at me and starting fights. I just last week had two lawsuits threatened against me and nothing, you know, I was just saying to to the lawyer at Artnet, I was on the phone for an hour last night with the lawyer, and I said, "Look, I'm, nothing's going to stop me." I mean, I almost felt like stopping writing these kinds of columns altogether from yeah, the I mean, anxiety, it worry and you. the stress.
2: It must worry you. Yeah, the anxiety from it. Is, is, is it just, there a part of it? Doesn't that like, is is it doesn't worry me. Is it worth it? The anxiety. You to, know what? To,
1: I don't care if I get. I don't care if I get shot doing what I'm doing. I just don't care. It well. worries me and it bothers me, of course. But I just said to Artnet, I'm like, you know what, I'll sign an agreement where I personally assume the liability for this threat of a lawsuit or any other one. Because I almost I said to my kids two days ago that I just can't deal with it anymore. I need to take a hiatus. It's just too much. But there's no upside. I get paid so little for my writing, but I do it because and then, um, like I said, I, I said to the lawyer and I said to this agitating person who um, the last person who instigated a lawsuit, And I said, nothing is going to throttle me. I'm not even going to let myself throttle me. And the reason I do it is because the art world is veiled. It's like the mafia omerta. It's a code of secrecy where nobody talks about the machinations of the... I never set out to be this kind of person. I mean, I've been writing for 30 years. I used to write for the first 15 years or 20 years of my writing. I wouldn't have even called myself a writer for one very good reason. Nobody read me nobody read anything i wrote because the iphone only began in 2007 and instagram which i think is by far the most revolutionary art platform in the history of art up to this stage where yeah. it is a it is a democratic wrecking ball which is deeply affecting the ingrained entrenched hierarchies that are so prevalent in the art world but as a result of the writing every time so when i started writing I took a break after a while because Artnet closed their magazine and they literally closed it and went out of business for a few years and then they relaunched it. But when I started to write again in around 2000 and let's say uh, 12, 13, 14, I would write something and it was really what I had always done, except this time my work was much more accessible and the audience for art has mushroomed like we've said before, and grown so substantially. And I, was, I remember in particular, I was mistreated by some person who calls themselves a collector. And like nowadays, if you ever found a collector that has never resold a piece of art, they belong in a vitrine in the Natural History Museum. <laughs> I mean, they're so few and far between. And, I, and basically, it's like, I'm, like I said before, I could be both of your dads. I'm old. I've been through a lot of shit. I've been through some awful family tragedies in the past couple of years. I've been through a lot. I've been in the art world for 30 years. I've been collecting art for 30 years. I don't rely on anyone for my sustenance or anything other than my own activities and actions. And I have nothing to lose. I mean, I have my life to lose, but I have nothing to lose. I don't feel. beholden to anyone in the art world. And I started writing these columns again, like phase two of my writing career. And it started to resonate with people. And I just remember, I wrote about this one Belgian uh, collector, and who really mistreated me and, and, and another collector badly. And I remember going to FIAC, the art fair in Paris, and walking down the aisle, and just people kept coming up to me and thanking me. And I thought it was like the craziest thing because I was really touching a nerve with people where they were grateful and showing their appreciation for the fact of of my honesty and forthrightness.
2: Expose, yes.
1: Yeah, but I mean like the fact is that I was saying before the art world operates on a code of secrecy. Nobody talks about the percentages and deals. Nobody talks about – how what really drives the behind the scenes activities in the market of buying and selling art. And like I am I'm a lawyer by training, I studied philosophy. I I I've been in the fashion business. You would never know it by looking at the way I present myself, which is very scraggly with my pants dragging on the floor, picking up dirt in my old track pants. But the fact is that again like back to insta- the exclusivities of the art world, I mean, you walk into a gallery and they look you up and down and make all of these determinations about you and judgments. It's so – the art world has its own it doesn't feel like that now. But it doesn't
2: feel like that now, though. I feel like we're in a generation now. I disagree.
1: I disagree. Really? It doesn't feel like that. You guys are famous. I'm sorry. But if you're a run-of-the-mill Joe that walks into a gallery and tries to buy something, they're going to give you the third degree. And if you look like me, they're not even going to barely want to open the door and let you in. They make all of these assumptions.
3: Also, I feel like the galleries – that. We go to aren't necessarily the ga- like the galleries we go to are often so tiny. us. do you know what I mean? Like you're supporting yeah, a lot of very but still young, like emerging I mean artists, no so like, no
1: being- so some some of these galleries. What once an artist is coveted, no matter if they're 20 years old or 120, oh. whether the gallery is one person working for it or 10, it gives a balance of power to the dealer and the whole power of art dealers is in access. And the art world still operates on a very hierarchical foundation and it's rife with hypocrisy. The art world has its own brand of hypocrisy. And I don't care how small or big the gallery is, if they have an artist that everybody wants, they are going to behave in a way where they, I, it's like you can't help yourself. They're going, they have a so called waiting list, but a waiting list is a, is a misnomer. A waiting list means whoever's more important than you, which could for me is everybody, that means they're all gonna be ahead of me on the list because yeah. they, you know, that's the way the art world works. I'm sorry. So, anyway, so I'm head, just saying that. Go yep.
2: Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, who's <laughs> head, who in the hierarchy of the art world then, who for you is at the top of the pyramid and who's at the bottom of the pyramid?
1: I mean, that's I can. There's two. There's two veins to the answer of that question. Mm-hmm. Of that. I mean, you guys don't even get a chance to get a question in with me. All you do is wind <laughs> me up, and I go on automatic pilot. That's you can bright. just shut that's your bright. microphones off, and I'll just finish by myself. <laughs> but the fact is, like, okay, so in the commercial art world, yeah. art like the, Roberta Smith is a writer for the New York Times. She's the, also is married to. Uh, Jerry Saltz, but let's talk about Roberta. When I curated my very first show in 1990, before you guys were probably alive, um, Roberta walked into (laughs) my... We were alive, yeah. So I used to to do these, we called them hit and run shows because that was even before the word pop-up existed. And I would take over an empty space, trade a few paintings that I had managed to collect when I was a part-time lawyer, and I would take over space and stage an exhibition. I showed Cecily Brown in the 90s, Wade Guyton, a lot of artists that have gone on to great acclaim, Rachel Harrison. Joe, Joe Bradley was one of yours, wasn't he? Joe Bradley gave him his first show. Uh, Catherine Bernhardt, her first show, all in yeah. these kind of um, guerrilla pop up spaces. And somehow, I don't even know how, but I I I clocked Roberta Smith, and I was this was the very first show I ever curated, and I walked up to her and I said, "This is a painting by an artist Walter Steading, and this is about." And as soon as I said the word about, she turned on her heels and looked at me and said, if I needed anyone to explain the art to me in a gallery, I would never leave my house and go to a gallery again. And then she looked at the show and walked out and a single tear welled up in the corner of my eye and started trickling down my cheek. Like from this famous TV commercial in America about pollution and there's an Indian standing in the street and some asshole throws like a bag of garbage at his feet and a tear drops on his face. And that was me. And then like literally 20 20 years later, Roberta wrote me a letter. I really I got to the point where whenever I saw her, I would be cowering under my desk, hiding from her. And at one point, Jerry said, Roberta wants to speak to you. And I was so petrified (laughs) And I went up to her and she wanted to know about a mini car that I had when I imported one of the first minis into the US. But then 20 years later, she wrote me an article and saying how much she really liked and appreciated my writing for these very reasons we're talking about. And I just broke down in hysterics crying again for the opposite reason it made me so well, that's happy an endorsement, i can
2: isn't it yeah that's someone you yeah, really and respect yeah she continues
1: that's, yeah and she yeah. continues to be one of my most supportive readers and then i know i'm doing something right so back to your question which miraculously i've i've managed to remember but mm-hmm. there there are two tiers to the art world there's the bullshit commercial sector which i critique And then there's the art-loving, Paul Tech Vito Acconci world of just pure passion, which is really what drives me. So Roberta Smith used to be the most powerful person on the planet Earth, in the planet art Earth. And I remember a dealer running up to me, waving a newspaper in her hand. And I said, what happened? What happened? And she said... My artist just got a review by Roberta Smith and it was one of the nastiest critical reviews I've ever seen. But she was so happy just to be reviewed by Roberta, even when it was a negative review.
3: So critics,
1: (laughs) so critics used to be omnipotent critics and museums used to be at the head of the fray. They used to be at the top of the pyramid. Then the art market and the money side literally took over, not just like, the speculating side of things, but it went much deeper than that. And then there's another issue that sets me off, which I'm sure is gonna make a whole other lot of people hate me for all new reasons. But I generally despise private museums. The only private museums that should exist are not in Los Angeles, not in New York, not in London, but in China or in the middle of America or in the middle of England where there's not ready access to art galleries and museums. So when you have a gallery, a museum in Los Angeles, I'm going to say this and I'm probably going to get sued again, but like I should keep a lawyer on staff, but there's a museum by, there was a Marciano museum owned by the people, the owners of guests, jeans. So like they're presenting themselves as a quote unquote museum in America, you get, it's replete with tax breaks. So they're saving money on, on, on storing and insuring their collection, all kinds of tax breaks uh, they receive. And at the same time, it's curatorship minus something very important called scholarship. And I'm really, to be honest, I'm not that interested in, uh, in, in the collection of someone who began collecting art 10 years ago and seems to like, again, I'm not picking on this family in any sense. I know it sounds like that, but ignore me. But what I'm trying to say is that like, When you have a private museum in the middle of a domain where there's a lot of public institutions, the art world operates on a zero sum game, which means that a lot of people that will go to visit a private museum in the smack in the middle of Los Angeles will do so at the expense of the two gigantic long uh, established museums. LACMA and MOCA, the Museums of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, even the Broad Museum, which has a great collection, but it's really like a night sale, uh, auction-derived collection. And the fact that really annoys me is that those museums are sucking away an audience that would, if there were no these fake museums existing in the Mm -hmm. middle of town, the audience would go to where they should be going, which is the public institutions. And also a lot of that art that ends up in the private museums like the Broad, he was the head of the museum of one of the LA's museums and the art in his museum would have for shit sure ended up in the collection of the public institutions that have painstakingly built up their constituencies over decades. So anyway, it used to be that critics and museums like the Metropolitan Museum and the Museum of Modern Art and the Tate were the all powerful at the very top of the mountain when it comes to uh, legitimizing art. And -hmm. and then when the market took over and like really, there's a vein of art, which you could probably use as the poster child for this type of art, the Diamond Skull by Damien Hirst, where the money is not, it's not just about the money, it is the money. The diamonds and the value of the diamonds he affixed to his skull, 8,000 of them, worth God knows how many millions, you'll never get the truth from anyone involved in the transaction, not even what ultimately happened to it and the consortium that ended up buying it, but we won't get into that. I hope you guys have a good insurance policy. But anyway, um, <laughs> God, <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's like it's God. like it's like instead of pop art or, or abstract expressionism, it's yep. economicsism today. So oftentimes the art is just the discord. I always, I mean, this is another really important thing. When I teach, I teach so I could learn, and for the, I usually teach seminars on art and economics, and you know this kind of market conversation we're having, but I started teaching at the school of visual art, fine art students. And that was as scary for me as being having my life threatened because I really, I never took an art class in my entire life. I'm completely self-taught. And I said to my students the first day, this is, this is, um, I feel so lucky to be able to sit in front of you because I never get to talk about art because I'm in the art world and nobody wants to hear about art. They just want to hear, Where is the artist showing, who's buying it, who's selling it. So the whole discourse on art has almost become uh, dissected or divorced from the art itself. So back to the powers that be, the top of the, the top of the pile today are collectors. Uh, I was going to curate a show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they had no money to paint the walls between exhibitions because they're being robbed of the financial resources tragically by the private sector. So today the collectors have all the power, uh, the galleries that have artists that everybody wants to buy gives them this disproportionate power of access. So a lot of art dealers will say you could buy the artist you want if you buy three artists you don't want from my gallery, then I'll consider you to, I mean, this is bullshit. I mean, and also like imagine going to a fashion designer and say, and and you go into a boutique and they say, you know what, we're not going to sell you this dress cause we just don't think you're the kind of person we want to project the image of our brand. And that's basically what art galleries do when they would this fake waiting list and they would rather sell to someone who has a private museum because that'll give the art, some more prestige and some more PR and yeah, some more visibility more than you can as a mere lover of art that simply wants to adorn your wall with the painting. So mm-hmm. really the the hierarchy is, I mean, it goes like collector first, then I would say artist because of, I mean, okay, good. The I was top, going to wait
2: for you to study art. Where does the artist stand? Yeah, but, stand
1: yeah, but you know what? 95% of the artists are in the lowest possible position, I'm afraid. We always read about all the art stars and all the artists that are attaining uh, these giant sums of money. But no, I'm afraid that the artists are are 90% of the artists in the world or 95 are at the lowest strata of this, um, of this flow chart, because the art, I mean, Instagram is very empowering for artists today, because when I first started, when you guys were in diapers, if you wanted to communicate, sorry to keep making fun of that, but I'm just like upset that I'm so old, but in the, <laughs> when I started, when I started, if you wanted to convey an image, if you wanted to convey, if you wanted to communicate an artwork from one human being to another, you would have to take a tiny photographic slide. That was no exaggeration, one inch square. And you would have to put 20 of them in a plastic sleeve, in a plastic sleeve and send them to a gallery to try to get a foothold into the system because i mean there was no instagram and there was no email and there was no jpeg so literally you had to rely on on regular mail and not only like you'd have to rely most galleries would not even entertain looking at unsolicited material by an artist and when there was a recession in, in the world in 1990, from 1990 to like 1995 to 1997, there were literally not, there was maybe one or two galleries in all of New York City that would entertain opening that envelope and even looking, casting eyes on the material that you would send to them. So, I mean, today- the, the same. Opportun- I mean,
2: you can't cold call galleries now. That isn't something where no. artists can just, I mean, no. that's, that's, that's no, but- been a, Go on.
1: No, I'm, of course, I agree with you completely. That's why I'm saying that generally, for the most part, the majority of artists occupy the lowest rung of this hierarchy yeah, right. even right. today. But, and there's a very important but, tools like social media, as much as people say that social media is a scourge of society and it's causing like pollution in the minds of children, and there's a new documentary about how people are addicted to their screens, You know, but during the pandemic, if it wasn't for screens, we'd all be visually illiterate for four months, which is a big Mm -hmm. chunk of time in the big scheme of things in our lives. So the point is that I have found, I'm sure you have too, I have found so many artists um, through surfing on Instagram. And there's one artist that comes to mind and her name is Eva Berison. And she just turned 65 years old and because of the fact that her husband is infirm she doesn't barely ever travel she had has a small gallery in vienna but her work was entirely unknown on an international level and somehow we found each other i can't even describe how Uh, neither of us can define exactly the point on instagram we met but we are Mm -hmm. certain that's where it happened and since then i've showcased her work um, in an art fair in Los Angeles that occurred simultaneously with freeze called Felix. And the work is sold to private museums. Sorry to like, I'm a walking contradiction in terms, but you, mm-hmm. if you can't contradict yourself, who are you going to? And the work has been widely dispersed. I just sold the piece this morning. I staged an exhibition on Instagram. I wrote an essay, which you could read on my website, which is just my name dot art. And, and, put some additional work on the website, and now the woman's been offered four gallery shows. So using nothing more than your telephone and what's at hand, you take a simple photograph of your work, the tools are now in the hands of artists that give them strength, unprecedented in the history of art. I can unequivocally say that even though it's as difficult as ever, and the art world is a very, very tough place, to Mm -hmm. break through and get a foothold into the system, which, and again, that's, that, that, that reverts back to why I'm even in front of you people. It's because of my writing largely. And the fact is that I want to be like, again, like when I came to stopping two days ago, what I'm doing because of this onslaught of threats that I received, I just, I get the feedback I get from Instagram. And by the way, anyone who's listening can get in touch with me. I always say to every lecture, I lecture all over the world all the time when you're allowed to give lectures to a live audience. And I've done too many Zoom conferences and live Instagram talks and anyone wants to hear anything more about me. But I will get any single person from any corner of the globe that contacts me. It's my duty and I'm compelled to answer them and I always do. And I mean, I've given lectures for kids at my kid's school and I said the same exact thing to these 14 and 15-year-olds. And then one day my son said to me, like, what are you doing today? And I said, I have a meeting. And he said, who's you meeting with? I'm like, I don't know. It's one of the kids from your class. And he said, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you meeting with one of the kids from my class? And I said, <laughs> well, he, he wanted to. He asked me to talk and pick my brain, which doesn't take very long. But I literally return every single DM, every single inquiry to me, I've met literally hundreds of people face to face from Instagram and I return everyone's query and it's my responsibility and my duty. And with my writing, I feel like I would have stopped a hundred times if it wasn't for the heartfelt feedback that comes to me at this stage of my career. Every day I get an email or a DM from someone, please don't stop. You're the only person that tells things and, and, and inspires people. Like you can cut through all the bullshit and all this terrible behavior and and find what's underneath it all, which is so alluring. Yeah. My passion has never abated for one second. I I get chills talking to the both of you. I mean, that really well, let's talk about let's talk existence. about your passion,
2: Kenny. Let's talk about your passion then. Yeah. Let's talk about you being a collector. You started yeah. collecting very early on and you have amassed the biggest collection. And then last year you had uh, a sale at Sotheby's where you uh, sold a lot of your work and... And you, you're collecting a game with the money from that. Let's talk about how you got a master collection and what
1: what you that just, was like. Then selling it all. I would say 80 percent of what you just said is wrong. Oh, okay, go correct me. Uh, we we did have a little tiff about this on Instagram, didn't we? Yeah, we did, Russell. Yeah, we Before did. Before you yes. even knew, it's sad, didn't he? No, he's I believe the word he used. All he wrote, look, I love both of you now, and I'm a loyal friend for life. But the first (laughs) word you ever said to me was shameful, I believe. That's what you said, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a shame. I said said it's a shame
2: for the artists, is what I said.
1: Yeah, but let me just, okay, so that really pisses me off. But (laughs) I have a great deal of respect. We have a lot of mutual friends together, like Tracy Emin, who I think is one of the most brilliant, profound human beings I've ever had the pleasure of meeting in my entire life, and she inspires me every day. And because of that alone, I'll love you forever. But you really did piss me off to know. <laughs> go on. To Yeah, but no I, when
3: Russell wrote no, that, wait. I actually contacted him because I thought he hadn't understood what was going on. I think he had basically misunderstood
1: what the premise. Right. Of so the let me was. let me just explain. Okay, so I lived in London for fifteen years. I thought my house was going to sink into the foundation, and. I had so much stuff. I thought that I was going to be one of these people you read about in the Daily Mail where they hoard so much crap that a pile of it falls over and suffocates them to death. And I honestly thought there was a chance that's the way I was going to lose my life from my collecting. I had car magazines and auction catalogs and art books and all kinds of detritus as well as first edition books and art. I love art. And I always say the best collector collects with... Has, No money is not an impediment to the best collector collecting. You'll find a way to beg, borrow, and steal. And a lot of people have actually stolen to buy art. The most famous one, which I use an example, is a surgeon in Boston who is the head of a children's heart surgery foundation. And he amassed one of the greatest collections of contemporary art in the 90s. And in fact, he stands as a symbol for someone who launched the whole kind of, um, a sector of the art market, contemporary, into the money-making machine it is now because he loved art so much, even when he had no money, he found a way to collect it. Unfortunately, he stole the money from a fund that was meant to help children have heart surgery. That didn't stop him from collecting. And when he went to jail where he belonged, he his collection, uh, Christie's made a determination to stage the first time in history In 1996, that contemporary art was offered at an evening sale at at Christie's and it hadn't been done at Sotheby's and it would have been a year later till Sotheby's jumped on board. But the point being that contemporary art was never a profit center for the auction houses. It was a market defined by modern and impressionist art where the big bucks were. So when this surgeon who was like, I joke in the most cynical, terrible way and say he was the best collector because. He, you know, he had to steal money, but he still had to have it. So it's not terribly funny, but often I'm not. Anyway, at this auction was the first time that Jeff Koons was sold in an, at auction and he made a world record in 1996. And you know what it was? $260,000 Kiki Uh Smith, an amazing American artist who must be in her sixties right now, she sold a piece for slightly above Jeff at 270,000. Robert Gober, who for me is probably one of the very greatest artists Mm -hmm. alive today, Mm -hmm. he was also in the auction. And Jeff Koons record was 260,000 and 25 years later it moved to 90 million Mm dollars. But that was the first time that contemporary art ended up on the radar of the auction houses as a place where they could make money. And here we are today where oftentimes it's the only discourse that surrounds the art. Anyway, I've been collecting art for 30 years, okay, and I have the, what I sold at this auction at Sotheby's called The Hoarder was 116 pieces in a collection. I don't, you know, I love art and I love to collect. I can't tell you, I honestly cannot tell you how much money I have made since my first and second year out of law school in 87, 88 or 88, 89, sorry. I don't I'm such a bad business person. I'm such I don't define myself by money. And if I did, I'd be have a pretty low impression of myself. But I don't care about the deals. I don't care about the money. I get more satisfaction writing and teaching than I do from selling mm-hmm. a Van Gogh I, I or read, a Monet or I read a Cezanne, that you know your net worth, I've
2: done. I read that you know your net worth by how much your art storage increases over, over time, how much you're paying every year. For your art story, I mean,
1: that's, I, and I, and I can't, to this day, I can't tell you how much art I have. I can tell you that I have, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I have somewhere around 600 pieces to a thousand pieces. So I sold 116 lots, Mr. Tovey. And Mm -hmm. that constituted about 1%, 1% of my collection. 1%. In my house, I moved to New York and already there's not like, I'm a maximalist. So in my house in New York, you, if you wanted to hang a piece of art that was 30, 30 centimeters square, you'd have to fight to find a place to put it. I am smothered in art. I'd rather look at art than, than, than out of a window, out of sea. That's how sick I so am. What, so what was, I the, mean, what was the premise
3: then? The premise was to sort of um, I have too free, much shit, free I mean, the works the, that were just no, in cupboards, basically, or no, in storage no, so that other I mean, people look, can enjoy
1: them. I have, I have three children and a family and I've been married for 25 years. I have to make a living (laughs) and I don't know anything else to do. I have I was the worst lawyer that ever lived. I'm the worst art dealer that ever dealt a piece of art. I loved fashion, but I couldn't, I'm not a salesman Mm -hmm. by, by nature. I love to read. I love to think. I love philosophy and you can't make a living as a philosopher other than a teacher. My writing pays peanuts, my teaching pays peanuts. I just lost one of my teaching jobs because of the pandemic at School of Visual Arts. The uh, admission is down by 50% and they're probably gonna end up in another year of Zoom classes. So. Mm. Art is my sustenance. So I have been in the art game for 30 years. My blood and my sweat is in art. When I, it took four months to dig out of the crap in my house. I call all of my art crap in the most loving, caring, uh, kind way. But I just think like, <laughs> mm-hmm. look, if you're not curing a disease, it's it's something extra, the same. I mean, for me, art is philosophy. It's a physical, aesthetic, illustrative manifestation of, of of psychological, historical, Mm -hmm. sociological, economic, everything. Art is my life. I make a living selling art. I make art. I sell very little of my own art. I don't make art to sell it. I make it because I have to. And I think it's better to be in a position. I finally had a few pieces that really started to sell well in my career as an artist. And I could so easily see how you can get stuck into the position of repeating yourself. Because when one piece of art that you've made starts to sell, People want one thing—the same yep. thing you just sold five minutes before—and mm. you get mm-hmm. stuck into this pattern of making three thousand paintings that are indistinguishable amongst one another. Okay, so you, I moved. Also, wait, wait! Sorry. It took me oh. four—it took me four months to dig out of the stuff that I had in London, and I sold a tiny fraction of my stuff. And I did something, which again I think, like you must you. Miss first of all, nothing I sold I had owned less than four or five years. One piece I owned for 30 years. Okay? That's number one. I don't I believe it's immoral to buy something from a gallery under the pretense of wanting to keep it and then yeah. selling it at least within the first three or four years you've owned it. That's yeah. unethical practically. So I don't do that. That's not how I make a living. So and then the second most important thing was that I sold it with no reserve. So, I, st- I, ne- you know what, I never even calculated whether or not I acted, how much I probably lost money in that auction. Everything sold, it had a great response, it went super I think well. That was what my something- comment
2: came from, though. That's why I was, that's yeah, but why that's, I made that, that
1: comment. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. I mean, sorry, but what no, I did was right. something so important. I gave everybody the chance, chance to buy to work. Yeah. I gave everybody yeah. the chance and I'm going to do it again. So get your nasty comments loaded up because I'm going to do it again. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> nasty. It's...
2: It wasn't... Do you know what? I, I didn't know the story behind it, but my my <laughs> thing was, is that I said, I felt it was a shame for a lot of the artists because there wasn't a reserve. Why? And yeah. my fear was yeah, that a but, lot of these artists' works would sell for like $200 or $1,000. And then these artists that yeah. then... It's that whole speculative market of the commercial art of course. world, where if yeah, but, they undersell yeah, their primary prices, then they're fucked. And I think that was what it was. Okay. And then I think you so, got really upset me that I was making a personal attack on you, but it it was well, to do with the art. It wasn't.
1: A sh- what I did was actually pretty noble, because if I say so myself, I <laughs> I like I said, even to this day, I don't know if I lost or made money, but a lot of people got to buy art that they really loved. they could not afford also one of my stupid little pieces i don't mean again i'm i'm being flippant none of the artworks that i sold for whatever price is going to materially affect the market or the life of an artist if you're selling 20 boafos a malco boafo who you had on your show yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm yeah one of the brightest most as well before he was well. okay one of the most stunningly successful young artists okay so I didn't sell any recently made art. There was no, one no, yeah. artist. Okay, but let me just say there was one artist out of 116 artists that complained to me, and I had bought his piece, and then I spoke to him, Oliver Osborne, who's a friend of mine. I did not buy his piece on the primary art market. I bought, he sold his piece. His gallery was negligent in selling the piece to one of the most notorious shitty hideous speculators known to the art world, they sold it to this person which they are guilty for even selling a piece to this person, that person flipped it. It ended up in auction before like the gallery even got paid. That's how disgusting it was. So another speculator bought it at auction. I bought it from them and I loved the piece so much, but the piece started to fall apart and it was only like a four-year-old, three-year-old piece and I got the artist to remake it, but he remade it and gave me a different piece, not the piece that I initially fell for. And I sold that. And that was the only complaint. And I bought that. That piece has been sold three times before I bought it. So like I said, I did not one iota of a thing that I regret or that was disrespectful to anybody. And people that love, so many people thanked me for having the opportunity to buy art they loved that they ordinarily would never have the opportunity to afford. And I did nobody any damage. If anything, I probably lost money. To end that discussion. Yeah, but I also
3: I also feel like you would also just had a really bad experience with the whole Inigo um Philbrick case where he was like yeah. you know <laughs> selling work that he didn't even own or whatever the story is. But I think didn't you lose quite a lot of money from that because I also feel sometimes if people have lost money and they need to make money in order to that had nothing, I don't know, Yeah, I mean that, that wasn't related was, to
1: it, right? No, Inigo is Inigo is important because it's in it it talks about a lot of other problems in the all world. He's endemic of the financial discourse that has stifled and suffocated the art world. This was a young guy that stole somewhere between 50 and 100 million dollars from people. But really, the biggest victims of his fraud were two art lending companies. And it was really the perfect storm. And I think he's going to come to symbolize a kind of bookend of the tw- the last 25 years. So it started with this surgeon who stole money from children to 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 fuel his art collection and it ended with this 33-year-old guy. He only just turned 33 and he he was partners with Jay Joplin to, to the day until the day he was arrested by the FBI. He was still owning a lot of assets and in partnership with Jay Joplin, who's one of the great art dealers, again, who I White have the Cube. utmost admiration yep. and respect for, the owner of White Cube Gallery. Mm. But Indigo, what people don't understand was a bright, capable, intelligent, personable person who just went off the rails because of mental illness, drugs, and alcohol addiction, and greed and hubris, just pure arrogance. But the fact mm. was, it's the people, the everyone wants to make a quick dollar. Everybody reads the headlines that a stupid painting by the studio of Leonardo da Vinci sold for $450 million and then ends up in the perfect place as like soft cultural capital in Saudi Arabia where journalists get murdered for doing the kinds of things that I do. Uh, And, um, it draws people into art thinking that art is a place with no regulation, the wild, wild west, a freewheeling place where anyone could turn a quick dollar. In five minutes. And that is the furthest thing from the truth possible. Larry Gagosian, who has 300 employees and 18 galleries uh, spread across the world, so much so that there's never a period uh, when one of the galleries is closed during the regular course of business. But Larry Gagosian is not. Uh, someone who just popped into the art world to make money. He's been in business for 30 years or more, and he's one of the smartest, most passionate art loving people that Mm -hmm. exist and the world's most successful dealer for a reason he had on, on payroll for five or seven years, John Richardson, who's a world's foremost, Picasso scholar, paying him a half, paying him a half for 500,000 a year for like 10 years. And he only ever did like three shows and. And he, they were wow. shows a museum could never do. Oh,
2: they I were, and I, I, Tracy, I know Tracy John. Tracy took him. me to his apartment. Yeah, Tracy Emin took the me to his apartment. The coolest thing in New the York world. Is that? Yeah, the best thing. Think, what a yes.
1: passionate, I mean, again, I'm getting the hair standing up on my yeah. body right now, speaking about him. Yeah, and him. no, the thing is that museums, for whatever sad reason, don't have the resources and the flexibility and the nimbleness of a gallery like Gagosian afforded a, a private institution or commercial institution to stage exhibitions that could never have been done and they supported john richardson in the latter part of his life which was i mean it enabled him to continue his scholarship and it was extraordinary the exhibitions he curated Museums just didn't have the flexibility or the financial resources. No, I mean, anyway, I, I saw the
3: Picasso show in, in King's Cross and it's yes. one of the greatest shows
1: I ever saw. Yeah, mine, and
3: I and I thought yeah, the whole exactly. installation of it, like, like all the walls they built, like all that kind of thing, like when they had those recessed kind of shelves and stuff, it was so beautifully done. And I agree, a museum yeah. wouldn't even have had the budget anymore, sadly, right. to to have done I mean, a show like that.
1: It's just- some of the stipulation, the stipulation from the Picasso family just has a little side story. Mm. There was a contractual stipulation that... That once the gallery was painted for the exhibition, none of the crates could be opened for a period of between three and four weeks until the paint had a chance to utterly and completely dry so there wouldn't be a chemical interaction between the paint and the artwork. No museum can afford to sit idle for a month like a gallery could, like a Gosian. Anyway, what I'm saying is that Inigo is just an example of rife greed. And that's endemic to, that's part, I mean, the all world is like the only place that celebrates the seven deadly sins. And yeah. there'll always be crime. There's, I mean, there's a bell's curve of morality and ethics in the world. And there's always going to be someone who breaches it, no matter how regulated the world is. And the great writer, uh, Georgina Adam, for the FT and the art newspaper, she stated in a seminar that people say that the all world is unregulated, but there's 165 laws commercial statutes that are applicable to any given art transaction. So I think that Inigo is endemic of, in our world, that's gone money crazy, where these lenders loaned money to him without doing their due diligence, and they just chucked money at him, and he he went off the rails for his own Sad reasons. So
3: I, I remember uh, him really early on because he came to our gallery and um, we did a group show with Virginia Overton in it, and he bought I think one or two of no I think I think one of the Virginia Overton sculptures from that show, and I remember him seeming like. He was actually quite nice at that point. And then about a year later, I saw him. And I remember just thinking, my God, he'd been so kind of corrupted by the power. You can like see it, yeah. you know, in the way someone behaves. And also the way they kind of distance themselves from you, even though they knew you a year before. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. very odd. Because if you're see, not part of that power structure, they're not, you're not useful right. to them. And I remember being so very disappointed just, yeah, by him. Amazing. I find it incredibly sad, that story.
1: If you stop right there, that that's if I could define myself it would just be in the sentiment of what you just expressed. I don't care where I am in my career and I always think I'm the biggest loser in the world and the biggest <laughs> failure more or less. But like I will I will spend any single person that ever reaches out to me for anything. Yeah. I feel it's my obligation to re- to give back. I spend my whole life accumulating the knowledge that I have, however small it is. And you could fit, it takes about three minutes to pick my brain, but it's my responsibility and my duty. And the reason I won't stop writing, even if it's the death of me, is that I owe it. I mean, I love art so much. I want to give the, I, I call myself cynically idealistic. And really art is, the. It, it's the fabric that keeps my family together. It's, a means, it's my duty, if anyone has a question, I want people to come away from my article or speaking to me or listening to me, however bored they may be. It's a good cure for insomnia. At the same time, I want to give people, like I said, I'm cynically idealistic, I hate everyone, I don't trust anyone until they give me reason to think otherwise, but I always give people the benefit of the doubt, and if they have any query or any curiosity about the art world, I want to be the person that inspires them about what the possibilities and the opportunities really are because I have not lost one iota of love and passion it's as simple and as corny as that for what I do yeah, but also from but the also, first by, day I by, started by
3: staying open like that I think I think you learn and that's obviously something that is important to you to learn and grow and that's also 100%. what you've just explained about Larry Gagosian because you know by working with um Richardson you know he's he's able to learn because you know it's knowledge yeah. and that is actually what we should all be holding up is this idea of knowledge and that's what talk art is that's why we like people like jerry Saltz. you know that's why we like all these artists that you've championed over the years like cambra Fala you know tracy emin joe bradley um ava bereson all these artists Catherine bernhardt like you were the one that had the mcdonald's painting you know by her when everyone told me right. that she was a rubbish painter and i remember seeing yeah. that work and being like i love this because to me it just felt pure and genuine and like she had something to say but also it was about shape and form and you know the way that she was creating paintings was really fucking interesting and I feel like you've always championed these kinds of artists you know and and that that's all that's important to me and yes all the other stuff you you analyzing the art world it's a side of the art world I try and hide from which is why I'm in Margate working for Carl Friedman and you know doing what we do because we're our own little thing like a family and i don't have to interact thing. with all the a bullshit now. because because i yeah but i and I, that's what i mean i feel like out of being true to ourselves like russell you know like what you know being friends with him and all that stuff we we've also created our own art world which is now kind of safe for me to be able to exist in because i'm too sensitive for all that stuff like the mm-hmm, whole yeah. indigo bullshit <laughs> people are shocked but to like, find
1: out that i'm a cow i'm a sensitive coward underneath it all
3: yeah, but it's not very difficult no, to I find that out, is in. it? I mean, no, if you I look can... at the art yeah. you've, you've shown and championed, it's all incredibly yeah. sensitive, um, you know, expressive work. It's not like it's cynical, you know, it's not even that no. conceptual. A lot of it is very expressionist, I think. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway,
1: cheers to you. So you're, s- you're still collecting? <laughs> you're still collecting, Kenny? A hundred percent. I will never so, stop. I'll have what's another the last sale thing you Sotheby's.
2: Um...
1: I bought two of Eva Bereson's paintings, yeah. again, to add yeah. to my collection. They're very reasonable. Yeah. Price. I mean, great art is not expensive. A lot of people mm. don't understand that you could buy incredible art for $500, $200. Mm. I bought yeah. something. So I bought a Tracy Emin. I was lucky enough to be able to get a piece from her show of very small paintings that she made oh God, during I the lockdown those. at YQ. Uh, yeah. I, I love that show. I, was, I was. think that's one of the best shows was. she's yes. ever done. I mean... Again, this is an important fact. Like Art is not big, flashy. Yes. Art could, some, of the, some of the biggest statements could be made in the smallest means. And so I bought a piece of hers. I bought uh, another emerging artist from a young dealer called Kate Wong. The artist has a very long name, which I can't pronounce. But uh, contact me, and I'll give you a list of the things I got. And <laughs> I, I'm always getting stuff. It's just what for you, me, buying- What do you look for? what do you look for in an artist and how often are you buying? (laughs) That's a great question because like in the, because I studied law, there's a famous case of pornography in the Supreme court of the United States. And in the fifties, there was a prosecution of someone who created pornography and they, the judge writing the decision said, you know, I can't describe pornography, but I know it when I see it. So I think for me, What what turns me on about art or what makes me decide to buy something like when I for me, the ideal artist studio visit is a visit. I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but a visit without the artist present, because I do critiques in schools all the time. And a lot of times the artist will blah, blah. But the point is art speaks for itself. And like when you judge a piece of art, all of the variables that go into like what constitutes a successful artist or a piece of art that's, you know, historical on some level what defines the art or like you, you judge it, you make a million different um, calculations in your head, if that's the right word of, mm-hmm. you look at everything that's happened in art history, everything that's happening now and how you think that art relates to the, the, the historical continuum in of art over time. So mm-hmm. I can't really, I mean, it's something that touches you. It has to be intuitive. You have to feel it in your heart at the same time, it has to be like all of the organs in your body combine. and through your eyes, through your brain and through your heart, you have an experience which is a visceral, indescribable experience that results in this very basic like hallmark card emotion where you get excited. You get your the blood circulates coursing like through your circulatory hit,
2: system. Isn't it? It's a dopamine, exactly.
1: Sort of. Not yes. in the bad way of two idiots in a pissing match at auction where they're outbidding each other just because it's a machismo display of dopamine addiction. But you're right. It's a it's a it's a chemical reaction. But it's an intellectual. It's everything that you live for in life combined into yeah. one beautiful aesthetic yeah. manifestation, yeah. You, which is ultimately you, indescribable.
2: Have you ever looked into the psychology of collecting? Why we collect? I mean, I'm I'm like I'm an addict. <laughs> yeah. and are like why? And I'm like I don't know why. I just do. And whereas my r- brother r- is no interest. Rough and I have been
3: like it since we were kids as well. We we've both had that bug. That's since amazing. we were Young children. It's really.
1: That's so funny because what is it? What yeah, are we? If I tell you what Freud said, you really think I'm nuts. But I actually cool. read what Sigmund Freud wrote that hoarding and collecting results from like. Bad toilet training when you're a child. Really? But uh, like some kind <laughs> of anal retentive, some kind of anal retentive disorder. Wow. But in a way, I mean, in the worst case, you're like filling. I mean, you could you could dismiss it and say you're filling an emotional hole in your life. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. people that shop so much and don't even open the boxes. Um, yeah. yep. I know someone that bought so much stuff from Amazon. I was expecting Jeff Bezos, or however you say his name, to show up at their door and congratulate them on being the biggest purchaser of crap from Amazon. But, I mean, (laughs) look, it it does give you that kind of hit in the same Mm -hmm. way that, you know, something bad does. But it's such a positive thing because, like I said, it has curative effects on the the psyche. I can't say Mm -hmm. that word right. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so... um, I don't know. I love to collect because what I think is most important about collecting contemporary art and for young artists, art is like history unfolding before our eyes in real time. And buying art is a way of participating. First of all, you're helping artists to survive. You're helping the art world to stay above ground. And number two is like, it's like, it's like a newspaper or politics or, you know, or just human in technology. Art is a kind of reflection of who we are at a given point in space and time, socially, economically, uh, psychologically, politically. So some of the best art of the last 100 years will emanate from the past six months, I could say over the next, really, we're going to see, so. we are going to see the effects of black lives matter and the pandemic. This is germinating in the minds of artists. And already coming to fruition through various works of art. I love the pro, like Nicole Eisenman, an extraordinary yeah. artist in America, a painter who paints like social realism. This is art that is timely. Talks about um, gender issues and and sexuality issues and gay rights and all of these different um, issues that have come to the fore right now. And I think that again, like what, who is if there was an artist who was president of the united states instead of that embarrassment warmongering hateful spiteful small-minded hideous orange menace as if we had a f- artist i mean imagine how the what a better place the world would be today i mean you never see also mm-hmm. female serial killers or like all of these lunatics killing each other i mean there were protesters in america that walked into a fast food restaurant with with uh, shoulder carried air anti-aircraft missile weapons protesting yep. about having to wear a mask yep. not only like to protect themselves but pr- protect their fellow others. persons on the street mm-hmm. others and like i mean what the fuck is wrong with the world we live in it's so shocking and art is the only thing that gives me solace besides my family and my friends me too and that's it you know
3: what i was just thinking when you were talking about your your experience like with what art means, like art for me gives sort of meaning somehow to to this crazy fucking world, and like you know in, it, recently we way. we've we've we're both obsessed with um shawanda Corbett's work, who shows with Tommaso T- 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 Corvimura, and i've just got a tiny little ceramic by her, well, it's might maybe not tiny, but it's like fifty centimeters or something because something in my like gut when I see that ceramic, like I love it so much, and like you say, it wasn't that much money at all, but it's something that I feel incredibly compelled that I have to live with it and I think that's the kind of collection that i I love and admire is when you feel that it is also a reflection of someone's own you know journey through this crazy fucking world so I yeah. mean
1: th- that's why just one thing um that's why I love prints and drawings. drawings mm-hmm. are so spectacular because it's the most intimate um continuation of a thought yeah. to a piece of paper through the hand yeah. of the artist. And people don't understand like, I mean, Julian Schnabel, I have a lot of respect for, but like an art piece doesn't exist unless it's the size of the side of a house for him. And I just think like, for me, some of the most profound expressions of creativity come in the smallest form and, you know, size matters. Small is as powerful and as meaningful and as profound for me as big and sometimes even much better because it takes up less volume in a world that's flooded with things. Yeah.
3: Well, we R- Russell and my my whole friendship is based on drawings because we bonded over Tracy's drawing titles, and it's been something that we've um, like it's followed our friendship even to like Hembra Fala, Like we now have tiny drawings by her. There's something about the intimacy of of drawings. Plus, they're that cheap I, as hell. As well. They're
1: cheap and they're so, yeah, they're accessible. You can buy title, a great yeah. right. I mean, you could yeah. start a collection with one thousand dollars. You can have ten pieces. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. And even more so. That's, really that's the other thing I
3: love about Instagram right now is the whole artist support pledge thing, where you can get a collage or a drawing for like a hundred pounds. You know, it's, it's and that, it's that's really enough worth to get.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is worth doing. It helps people on so many levels. Exactly. Yeah. Well,
2: talking about that, talking about artworks of uh, that you covered, If there was an artwork, this is one of our toolkit questions. You're now getting Kenny Shaktar. If there was any artwork in the world, you could do an imaginary art heist, a really nice theft of a work of art. What would it be and why? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, again, like you're asking the wrong person because I would just throw a net out and take everything. I just I'm such- <laughs> You'd also such... be
3: way too noisy, I think, Kenny. I can't imagine you <laughs> doing a silent art heist. Like you no. rocking up to a museum. <laughs> I think you'd set every alarm off and also talk to the security guards. Although maybe you'd win them round, actually.
1: I beg I beg <laughs> your pardon. Excuse me, now, you're starting with me. Don't you start with Ooh, me now because I'm yeah. happy to this is fight our with you fight too. Now. Good I'll one. see that's you like your on fl- your. Thr- it sounds like you're I-
2: flirting right now. Actually,
1: that's I, yeah. Well, why not? <laughs> I'm, I'm an, an equal opportunity employer. I I always told my kids like a hand is a hand, and if it's between your legs, it's going to feel good, and you should feel anything oh that turns you on is god. worth pursuing. Oh, my, oh god. my god. God. But anyway, I guess like I mean Paul Tech a meat sculpture because it's just I wanted to have my ashes secretly embedded in the middle of one of his sculptures unsuspecting to only an x-ray but I just think for me it just defines you know everything that I covered in life it's it's about human humanity it's about the vulnerability of life and how we have to we're all the same motherfucking people and it's disgusting to think that the leader of, of like China Russia and America I'm not so sure how Boris is doing in his job since I left a few years ago but like you know, it's so sad, and I'm 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 really hurting within to know that the leader of a country should be uniting people. If you cut someone open, which is what Paul Tech's sculpture is depicted, what we look like on the inside is you couldn't distinguish anyone from any culture, from any walk of life, from any sexuality, from any race or creed or any background, an organ is an organ. And we're all the same people with the same desires, the same passions, or under an umbrella of human pursuits. And why is the why do we live in the most divisive time in my entire life? I just don't know what to make of it. It's so mm-hmm. irrational. And it goes against, I mean, you have Donald Trump saying that the people in Baltimore, where like John Waters is from, and a lot of great people throughout mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. Um, how can, he's saying that it's a rat hole, a state within his own country. What the, I mean, it's just so fucked up what why are we in at this point that the lowest common denominator has the highest exposure and yeah. and and say in in the it world can't, it so can't
2: last can it it's got there's got this it better not point last now yeah
1: yeah and also, like, so i just think that his friends yeah.
3: as well i mean what the fuck is that all about the commutation yeah
1: thing. so i just think like for me paul tech exposes the humanity the fragility the fragility of life and death is something that we all take for granted Young people run around, like I said, and go to raves and stay out to six in the morning, like my kids. And also, like, I mean, there's a lot of issues that just, you know, this type of art addresses, which is just like he made the most continuous thread throughout uh, his career was painting on newspaper. Like, he painted on newspaper because it's looked down upon as the. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he painted on newspaper because it was like a throwaway, cheap. On the art hierarchy, everyone values canvas and bronze among all other forms of art. But like we talked about, paper for us is, paper for me is platinum. I love drawings and you do too, and that also ties yeah. us together. And um, yeah, so I think that these humble forms of art making and Paul Tech's humble use of materials, he his work ethic was above all else what drove him. Just art is a way of life. It's not a thing. It's not a $50 million painting. Art is a way of life and conducting yourself and being open to people and ideas from people from all walks of life. And it's something that brings us all together, disparate people. Even Russell and I are now friends. in so love us It brings together people forward, yeah. with opposing. It, it, it brings together people that have, you know, you may think, once you get to know someone, then you fall in love. And people don't give people the chance to even appreciate and understand each other from the most especially, basic level. Especially
3: you and me, Kenny. We we fell in love very quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was probably you never, too drunk you, to
3: remember.
2: Yeah. Have <laughs> you never got close to owning Paul Tech then? Or have you ever collected his work? Or uh, had a... I mean, you, mean, how much I are these works left. if you were to... Oh, you do?
1: Well, I mean, right now, I I had a load of them. I had to sell them for economic necessity when I was broke. I helped to curate a show at the Reina Sophia, the Whitney, I advised and I wrote a, a chapter in an MIT book, but I probably have, like, again, I don't, most recently, oh, yeah, like one of the most recent pieces I bought was like a bronze, uh, uh, a, what is it, leisure, French, French Legion hat, which talked about Paul Tech embraced failure and weakness. He said there's strength in weakness, and I just love that. It's, it just means, like, instead of, like, picking a fight with someone, like, by being by being weak, but as ostensibly, like, a non-machismo competitive, I hate competitive sports, and I, that's why I get into art, and then art becomes more of a contact sport than rugby, but, like, um, I love this kind of sentiment about, like, weakness and, and strength through what is, from all outward appearances, what would be viewed societally as a weakness, but turning the other cheek and just embracing people for what they are and not being so judgy, even though I'm a very critical human being and I do it for a living. But I just like to point out the kind of hypocrisy that passes for the norm in the art world, which seems to be a little bit more extensive than in other sectors. So we
3: ask every guest another question. What is your favorite color?
1: (laughs) Am I exhausting you, by the way? (laughs) we could just keep going and going and going i feel like you guys
3: sometimes we we edit the edit the episodes but i feel like with yours we just need to let it be
1: free (laughs) let it flow like diarrhea um (laughs) i love blue (laughs) i love all shades of yeah but i love brown i love brown i love the tab i mean it's funny for 15 years i lived in the uk in london and there's one thing i missed just one thing besides people and that's the Thames and the color of the Thames, the special kind. I, I made an art piece like creating a fictitious tube of paint called Thames Brown. And I remember when I first, I mean, on a sad note, it's, it at times it could be very polluted and there's a lot of refuse that I would document through my day. I literally went to the Thames every single day of, of my time in London. And I love Brown for that very reason alone, and also because it's so frowned upon. There's actually like an order of colors that attain the highest amounts of money in art in art mm. sales, and red is mm. number one for some reason. And then I think white, and then blue comes third or fourth. The bottom of the heap is green and brown. But um, I love brown, but blue is probably for some stupid reason, unbeknownst to me, I love blue, mm. especially in a nice old car from the 60s or 70s.
3: Yeah, because we didn't wow. talk about the cars, but I always remember that about you. People were like, he's a collector. I just love industrial design. I do loads of like... cars, and then he has exhibitions no. like next to the cars. And I remember going to Rose yeah. Projects. on.
1: I had a um, car under my desk for... in my office in London. Yeah. <laughs> oh but gosh. I just, I love Zaha Hadid. The architect was my best friend. And it oh, was wow. the, I didn't know about art as an alienated, overweight. St- I actually stuttered. Part of the reason I never shut the fuck up when I talk is that for the first 12 years or 13 years of my life, even into law school, I couldn't publicly pronounce the letter D and I stuttered. So I was overweight, alienated, had a terrible, my dad tried to get me to quit art altogether. And um, I came to cars. I don't like car racing. I don't like expensive cars. I like industrial design. And as a result, I had a very like incongruous relationship with Zaha where we traveled to 10 different countries all over the world. And I revered her in the omnipotent power that she possessed because of her creative thinking and, and ideas. And so I love industrial. I, I came, cars were my uh, gateway drug into art.
2: So what's next for Kenny then? What, what is on your radar? Who are you looking at? Who do you want to collect? And then when is this uh, part two of your hoarder sale?
1: Um, I was meant to have a show of my own art at Blum and Poe in Tokyo yeah. in March. And that's been, and it's funny because like, I'm such the polarizing kind of human and it's hard to imagine why I'm so nice and charming. Why would you ever want to <laughs> sue me or beat me up? Um, but that show is, <laughs> yeah. people actually call Blum and Poe and said, how could you show such an asshole? How could you insert Kenny Schachter into your program when he's such a dilettante, I mean, a used to be historically something that was admirable to be the jack of all trades. I mean, I do six different things that I could remember and they're all under the rubric of art. So I wouldn't be able to write. I'm the only person probably that I know of that um, writes about the art world, but also curates, sells it, makes it, teaches it. That gives me the insight to be the writer I am because I am not just talking from the sidelines, I'm participating. So the things that I'm most excited about are finally having this one-person show with Blum and Poe where I get to express myself on a whole other level and continuing to write and to find platforms to... I mean, Artnet is talking about um, going behind a paywall. And I said to them, if you even think for one instant that you're going to charge for my writing, I quit. I mean, the whole point of writing for Next to No Money is to be as accessible to as many people as humanly possible. If yeah. anyone is going to charge for my writing, it's going to be me, not Arnett. I'm, I do enough for them already. And after this last lawsuit, I wrote an article in re, about, um, um, I don't know how to say his name, but the painter that you've had on your show, Boafo. I've written a piece Am- about. Amo-Echo. The, right, Echo. I've written a piece about, you know that this guy, is 36 years old, I believe. And he's had 16 Mm -hmm. of his artworks come to auction. And they've all been in the last, in the six months of 2020, not even six and a half months. The first 16 pieces that he has ever in his career publicly at auction have been in the last six, under six and a half months. And they've all been, 15 of those 16 pieces were painted in in 2018 and 19 and one in 2017. And that's criminal. But that's anyway what I'm looking forward to. Do buy, is Who's not buying to
2: be, them works? Who's buying them works? And you know and the crazy how,
1: thing is like a bunch of fucking asshole speculators. One of which has just threatened to sue me. Um, I, should I say his name? Jeremy Larner. Okay, I said it. <laughs> I'm very. You could see why I need to be muzzled more. By <laughs> even my family was like, Dad, enough lawsuit threats. Maybe you should just sit on the sit it out for six months and have a cooling. They wanted to give me a timeout. My own children want to put me in the closet and shut me up because it's just enough for them. All the threats I get, literally, I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. I can't even, I'll tell you next time we have a drink together, even though I don't uh-huh. drink, thankfully, for the world. Anyway, um, so he, when when Amawako befriended, unfortunately, some of the wrong people, when he began to um, become more integrated into the uh, contemporary art world, commercially speaking, and he mm. sold work to what he thought were his friends uh, for between, you know, 1000 thousand and ten thousand and $10,000. And I would say every single one of those 16 pieces that have come back on the market, not to mention all the private sales, which have probably constituted, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I would say 60% of the pieces that artist has sold have been resold within the span of a year to a yeah. year and a half it's tragic and you know what mm-hmm. i think he's a strong artist but a lot of artists have suffered at the hands of rampant speculation to the point where careers have been irrevocably damaged because but do you think his of, will
2: do you think his will because
1: his prices have you been
2: know, kind of yeah. cemented now they seem to be really- i mean look
1: here, Here's another story. I mean, I, again, like I, I'm sorry to just go on and on, but like I just had a call today from someone asked me about the work of Matthew Wong. Yep. Matthew Wong was a very close personal friend of mine and his mom, and he just took his life in October. And mm-hmm. I lost my son the same way a year and a half ago, who was only 21 years old. There's been an increase in suicides from the ages of like 15 to 25 alone, up 60%. In the last 10 years and it's a tragic manifestation of where of social media and a kind of mental illness which is rampant and so unspoken about to this day and society is really suffering because of all of these things and the hatred and the competition and everything that we're talking about is really affecting people in a way that is unprecedented in history in my life I'm 58 years old. I've never known a single person who attempt who yet attempted suicide yet uh, went through with it. And anyway, Matthew's, the first piece of art of his to ever go to auction was a tiny drawing about two months ago that went for $60,000. And his first painting to ever sell at auction on a $50,000 estimate sold for $1.82 million. And there's something so morose and morbid about these People that dance on your grave, you know, it's just so disgusting. To be mm. honest R- with you, Russell and I had and, the
3: same conversation a few days ago about that, like, very who's that. Who's
1: buying that? Who's? Well, you know, I mean, the people, the people, the fact that there are people buying that art for six hundred thousand by Amawako. The worst thing is that it's going to shrink his market exponentially because all of the people that should collect his work. All yeah. of the people that rightfully should own his work, live with it and appreciate it and love it, they're now closed out of the market. And someone just called me this morning, literally this morning, before I started this conversation with you, somebody contacted me about Matthew's work and said, what do you think? I'm thinking about buying a piece today. So I'm like, what do you mean you're thinking about buying a piece today? You, The, the estate run by his mom, who's a beautiful sensitive human being who's suffering the same way that my family is grieving. It's unspeakable, the loss that we're going through and experiencing. Mm -hmm. And she had such a hard time experiencing these auctions right now. And this person said to me, like, what do you think? And I say, well, you can't. What do you mean? You can't even the family is closed down any further. The last posthumous show of Matthew, which he finished just prior to taking his life, uh, transpired after his death and nothing was for sale
2: and the blue paintings at karma gallery correct
1: so yeah. there's no there's no primary market for matthew because nothing is being sold by the estate and i said to this person like how are you thinking of buying a work nothing's for sale and he said to me on the secondary market and i said you know i love matthew to, so much and his mom why on earth would you ever buy a piece now why would you, with the resources that these speculators are charging for the work you can yeah. buy the work of a thousand artists find Imagine someone else support. who yeah, needs yeah, to su- yeah. find someone else find someone even who's successful that doesn't need the support you could buy a piece of art for one two three four hundred thousand dollars by a very successful mid-career artist whether it's a work on paper or whatever, yeah. but like, a why would you even? More,
2: yeah.
1: Why would you want to dip into the market at one to two million dollars when I mean, even this small piece that wasn't even the best quality of Matthew went for one million dollars at Phillips, like a day after the Sotheby sale. Mm-hmm. Why not buy something from someone who actually needs it? Who not only that, but you could do so much better to um, fi- who to find the support. I mean, you could discover an artist for nothing, for peanuts. Not even like thinking about money, but just thinking about quality. Why would you want to spend that resources? Give away the fucking money to charity and go buy a piece of art from...
3: these people aren't aren't thinking like us. I mean, and that's the whole thing. It's no, like different kind of human yeah. psychology, isn't it? As well, and power yeah. people buy and people want with to have ear. something this, they can't have as well, and all this weird shit. I no, mean, it's just. Yeah. And they, the, they're another they're not crazy art thing either. is, wait, I'm sorry. No, not art
1: like one quick thing. Sorry to cut you off, but you see how wound up I am now. But like, when it's one thousand dollars, nobody wants it. When it's fifty thousand yeah. dollars, people start whispering. And when it's five hundred thousand, everybody wants it. And that's human nature. It's pathetic but that's human nature, more people are attracted. That's why I all of, I mean, people always talk about like me selling art or me collecting art or what, I mean, the artists that I love, like Vito Acconci was a great conceptual seminal artist who changed the course of art history. And yet there's still no market for his work. You could buy a piece for five grand or whatever it is, even though Pace is now representing his estate and people buy art with their ear and they all, success unfortunately affirms success. And you know, people that start to break out into that kind of exposure create a snowball effect of other people that want it simply for the reason that it attains such high numbers. And that's really, you don't buy art with your ear. I mean, I love the art dealer in Germany called Johann Koenig. And I just gave a lecture there three weeks ago in Berlin. And he introduced some prints that I made, which I was so proud of because I revere, I'm not art royalty. I'm art like peasant scumbag, but like You know, his father started the Munster Sculpture Project, was a curator at um, the Ludwig Museum for decades, and has been the curator of many Biennales across the world. And Johann was the, he suffered uh, an an accident where he lost 80% of his sight. So I always say, I hate the saying that you have a good eye in the art world because one good eye won't do it. You need two good eyes. Unfortunately, most people buy with their ear, according to what their friends recently purchased. But I just love the determination of an art. He wrote a book, The Blind Art Dealer, because he's legally blind. And that just did not get in the way or or prevent him from becoming one of the greatest art galleries for emerging art in the world, based on his pure, crazy love of all things art. And I admire him so much for that fact because it goes to show you, like, you don't even need a good eye. You can have no eyes. But if you could see 10% or put your hands on something, that's enough to have a passion and develop a love and an appreciation and an understanding about art.
2: Wow. Well, Kenny, we have a love, massive appreciation, and an understanding of art more so now from talking to you for the last four hours. This Thank has you been, so <laughs> much. <laughs> this has been a talk <laughs> art special. Yes. I think it's we extended. understand each
1: other a little. I think we understand each other a little better now too. Yeah. Do you so forgive I me, Kenny. We I love you. I could say. <laughs> I also think. Good. I also. I've
3: just realized, Russ. I'm I also kidding. think.
1: I'm not kidding either.
3: I think. Uh, I think you. You were thinking of Mark Jacobs sale, where he said that he was going to sell it and then buy a whole new collection, like you know, start
1: collecting. No, it and, wasn't that. No, no. It wasn't, no, it no, wasn't. No, he was talking about me. But let me just. Now that you just mentioned that, oh. I mean, when you. I mean, I have the greatest. I love grunge, and I love Mark Jacobs. He's a genius, obviously. Yeah. But like yeah. he. Oh, talk into your, your phone, cam- Kenny. Talk into your phone. Oh, now, please, That's it. Go on. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry. One second. Mark Jacobs had a sale and he went, he made all of these promotional videos for Sotheby's. I love the crazy yep. ass shoes he was wearing. But he said that how he fell in love with all of these artists how much he loves art and how the artists were his friends. And he turned around and sold every goddamn piece he ever bought from all of his quote unquote friends. I don't behave like that. And I think that's so wrong. I know he just, his company started floundering financially and he bought a major house designed by like, um, what's his name? Um, who, who designed the Guggenheim museum, Frank Lloyd Wright. And he had to pay for that. Right. So he looked at his art collection as a financial asset, which so many people have done. That's a, I mean, I think, look, I have respect for him and everyone should do what the hell they want. We live in a free, relatively free world, although less free than it's ever been. But I mean, to go on camera and say how much you love John Curran and his wife and Rachel Feinstein and all of these other uh, artists like Karen Kalimnik, and then to dump every single piece at auction mm. in the most high visible way that makes what I look like, like Peter Pan. I mean, that's, that's absurd. That's Do not Do you think right. the artists were
2: upset. Do you think they found that per- to their personal?
1: I mean, watching that video would make me cringe if I was an mm. artist who befriended a, a famous, I mean, again, like, because he's Mark Jacobs and a celebrity people would sell him anything. You know, the art world always acts to be on this high, plane of greater human understanding, but whenever, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio strolls into an art fair or Brad Pitt, they get treated like, you know, Medici, it's fucking absurd. I mean, Lee, I mean, again, like I'm selling the story that I wrote for New York magazine about Inigo Philbrick and his capers that ended up in the UK times about a month ago in the magazine section on a Saturday. And now there's a bunch of movie companies that are bidding for my story, one of which may be owned by our art collecting acting friend. But that guy has sold more art than I have. And you just wonder why. You have more financial resources than most people could. Let's just keep this between us and our six million listeners. No, this is, (laughs) I don't care. Put it on the record. I don't care. It is what it is. So who are we talking about, Leonardo DiCaprio? I didn't say that.
3: <laughs> no, he say that. He all i'm saying actives. is like I
1: think he's actually talking he, about the other one oh, okay. yes that one sold a Rudolf stengel piece to Inigo philbrick through a proxy so he bought a piece from sadie coles and sold it six months later why it's beyond me why do people do that because it's a game to these people they buy it and sell it because they can it's trendy you know you hang out with all these i don't know let's change the subject before i, I think get it's also to do with another.
3: validation as well and like an ego and insecurity. Actually, Yeah. I and mean, I think
1: evil. when you're a celebrity like that, it's more to do with just glamor, yeah. you know, being in the game. It's a I'm feeling like you were white in the or game or whatever the word is. Yeah. And it's well, not thank a game. You it's people's lives. So we're talking about
3: much. That should be the name of your film, the
1: game <laughs> <That> <laughs> no, or the guarantee, the guarantee, the <laughs> guarantee. That's a good one. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, thank we can have so, a whole so part so two and much. talk about all the auction bullshit. Yeah, so well, when your movie we'll comes leave out... Leave this to be... Okay, perfect. <laughs> I, ho- I hope
3: you get a starring role in the movie. <laughs> they need you. No, no. It, they'd have Danny
1: DeVito playing me. <laughs> 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 what are you That's laughing Andy at? DeVito. You're not supposed to laugh so... <laughs> I love the voice that Good
2: casting, good casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> <You played laughs> so great. Well, all, all him images we have spoke about, it's going to be a busy uh, TalkArt Instagram page, is at TalkArt. Kenny, you're on Instagram, and your handle is at Kenny Schachter.
1: Kenny Schachter. S C H A C H T E R. We're going to. Kenny said,
2: if you want to uh, write anything to him, he will respond to everything. So bombard him, keep him busy. Please. I don't know how you uh, do that
3: though, because we get so many messages, and I I try to write to as many people as possible. But it is actually just exhausting after a while. It's time-consuming, but
1: yeah. Yeah, it's I'm worth just, it. And then, remember. Remember. so it's three
2: of us, three of us as kids who couldn't wipe our bums properly, and have become collectors. <laughs> in, the, in the words of Freud, and here we are finishing up this episode of Talk Heart but we will perfect. all uh, see you again soon. Thank you we'll again, be back Kenny. Very
3: soon. Thanks okay. for okay. Everyone. Was, Bye, Kenny. Bye. Okay. Bye. bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast,
0: or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.